The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In parts 1 through 4 of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Megachurches. We dismiss this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode and the context of the remaining portions of this podcast and its episodes, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episode and their content in order to move forward with contextual discernment. Now, in this episode, we move forward and pick up where we left off. The author says the following, quote, Every time a former evangelical becomes an atheist in favor of empathy, he draws closer to Jesus. 
Every time Pope Francis sides with those the church casts out, he is closer to Jesus. Every time conservative Roman Catholics try to stop the Pope from bringing change to the church, they are on the side of those who killed Jesus, unquote. Okay, let's start with this, quote, Every time a former evangelical becomes an atheist in favor of empathy, he draws closer to Jesus, unquote. In order to parse this phrase, let's simplify the statement to say, quote, Every time a former Christian becomes an atheist, they draw closer to Jesus, unquote. In this case, are we to believe that it is an accurate statement that whenever a Christian, i.e. a follower of Jesus, who is God, becomes an atheist, i.e. someone who denies that there is a God, they draw closer to Jesus who is God? Really? How does denying that there is a God help one to follow God? In order for this statement to make any sense for an atheist, Jesus cannot be God. He has to be just a man. If Jesus is just a man, then why does anyone, including a Christian, a former, current, evangelical, or an atheist, want to follow someone who's just another man? According to the author, it appears that the deciding factor is one of empathy. Apparently, the Jesus of the Bible, at least those portions of the Bible that atheists like, is motivated above all else by empathy. Keeping in mind that the Jesus of the Bible is fully God and fully man, the question is, is empathy or love the only attribute that God possesses? Now, I have already devoted an entire episode entitled Questions About God's Love to answer this question. However, to summarize, we can answer the question rather quickly by asking several questions. 1. Does God empathize with or love Satan? 2. Does God empathize with or love rebellion? 3. Does God empathize with or love evil? 4. Does God empathize with or love sin? In all four cases, and doubtlessly in others, the answer is no. The reason is because God has other attributes which prevent this, such as justice, righteousness, and holiness. So, yes, God, i.e. Jesus, has empathy and love, but Jesus' empathy and love are not to the exclusion of his other attributes named above. Each of God's, i.e. Jesus' attributes, are true and perfect. While man is capable of exhibiting some of these characteristics, only Jesus is able to exemplify all of them perfectly. According to the Bible, when we talk about man attempting to exemplify attributes which please God, the declaration that the Bible makes is that according to Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12, 
quote, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one, unquote. Further, the Bible reveals that the only way that anyone can please God is by accepting God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, which is imputed to our account as righteousness by faith. Thus, the only time when we can hope to truly have Jesus' nature of empathy, love, and the remaining qualities is when we have a relationship with Jesus and thereby have his nature implanted within us via the new birth. The dilemma for the atheist, as is in the case of this author, is how does one who is by definition one who denies that God exists and that or Jesus is God have a relationship with a person whom they deny? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 puts it this way, quote, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him, unquote. Next, the author says, quote, Every time Pope Francis sides with those the church casts out, he is closer to Jesus, unquote. Well, regardless of personalities, whether we are talking about a person that no one has ever heard of, or the most important religious figure in the world, the issue is the same. In order to know with assurance who, what, when, how, and why any person or persons are or are not, quote, closer to Jesus, unquote, one would have to consult with the ultimate authority which is the Bible, for truth and reality to do so. Everything else would be simply a subjective, relative opinion. Insofar as the church goes, the Bible makes it very clear that the church does have the responsibility to maintain God-centered discipline for those who would remain or maintain membership in said biblical church. If members will not respond to God and his word regarding the responsibility members have to honor God and love as a result of the work that Christ has and is doing in our lives, then the church's duty is to humbly, respectfully, lovingly, and patiently use its discerning gifts to maintain the health of both individual believers as well as the church body at large. Ultimately, as a last resort, if individual would-be believers fail to respond to the clear teachings and admonishment of Scripture, as well as to the church's efforts, then there should and does come a point where the church casts people out, because essentially, whenever rebellion to God and His Word 
exceeds submission to God and his word, the corresponding attitude would axiomatically tend to support the fact that repentance and conversion from the old nature has not yet taken place. Worse yet, a stubborn attitude towards repentance would tend to demonstrate rebellion towards God and the church. Hence, such a person cannot be in the church because in order to be in the church, one must be called out from the world from rebellion to repentance and confession, which is what constitutes being part of the church. Consequently, if a church, or more specifically a church leader, knowingly routinely allows someone, anyone, to attend their church as part of the body of Christ, when that person is knowingly, routinely committing a clear violation of Scripture, and that person shows no sense or desire to repent and seek God's deliverance, then if that church leader knowingly and routinely ignores this, they are not moving that person themselves or the body of Christ, quote, closer to Jesus, unquote, by doing so. The church's commandment is to be salt and light, not tastelessness, bland nothingness, and blinders. The church the biblical church gets closer to Jesus by following Jesus according to his word, the Bible, which is the ultimate authority for truth, meaning morals, reality, beauty, and significance, and not the world, atheist, or secular humanistic reasoning. Moving on, we read, quote, Every time conservative Roman Catholics try to stop the Pope from bringing change to the church, they are on the side of those who killed Jesus, unquote. Well, I hate to break it to the author, but the primary reason that they killed Jesus was because of blasphemy. Jesus repeatedly made claims that he was the Messiah and God. He made himself equal to God. From an earthly standpoint, this reality did signal change for those who had made a career out of the Mosaic Covenant. But from a biblical standpoint, God repeatedly predicted throughout the Old Testament regarding the details of the coming Messiah, Jesus the Christ. So the key is this. Both then and now, those who truly know, accept, and honor Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, are not on the side of those who are trying to kill Jesus. They are instead following and worshiping him. The ones then and now who are on the side of trying to kill Jesus are those who deny in whole or part the deity and lordship of Jesus. Following this, the author then states, quote, A leper came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean, unquote. The author states if Jesus had been a good religious Jew, he would have said, quote, Be healed, unquote. 
and just walked away. Instead, he stretched out his hand and touched the leper, saying, quote, I do choose, be made clean, unquote. Even though he was breaking the specific rules of Leviticus, two chapters teach that anyone touching a person with leprosy is contaminated, unquote. Once again, the author completely misses the point. The leper in this story was healed not because Jesus was a mere human with the greatest sense of compassion, empathy, and love of any mere human who ever lived. Instead, the leper was healed because of his faith in the fact that Jesus was Lord. He was God. He was the Messiah who, being God, has power over life, death, and everything else, including leprosy. Once again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, shown in action, quote, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him." Unquote. Second, if the author had done a more thorough, diligent job of research, the author would have come across Leviticus chapter 14, which covers the ceremonial requirements for cleansing of skin diseases, including leprosy. If he were to read down to verses 10 through 19, the author would see the offering of a lamb and the lamb's blood, which are an atonement for sin. Extrapolating this and other verses, if the author understood the message of the gospel, the author would realize that Jesus is not violating or breaking any rules of Leviticus. Instead, Jesus was fulfilling them. Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world who gave his life and the propitiatory covering of his blood to atone for all sin, all uncleanness, including leprosy, for those who placed their complete faith in him as Lord, as did the leper in the above story. The author's problem in understanding the incident flows from the fact that the author does not understand or recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do. Thus, the author sees a conflict instead of a reconciliation and a fulfillment. Up next, we have this statement from the author, quote, in evangelical and Roman Catholic fundamentalist terms, Jesus was a rule-breaking humanist who wasn't quote-unquote saved. A conservative bishop would have refused Jesus the sacraments. Christianity Today magazine would have editorialized against him, calling for his firing, banning, and branding him a traitor to the cause of Christianity, unquote. Here, once again, if we are going by the ultimate authority of God's word and not the world, Jesus is God. Jesus does not need to be saved. God was never lost, fallen, or in sin. 
with regard to the evangelical Roman Catholic or any other church, it makes absolutely no difference what they or any other man or group of men's terms are. The only terms that matter are those of the ultimate source of authority, the Bible, in context. The only way that Jesus can be a rule-breaking humanist who, quote, wasn't saved, unquote, is to commit the blasphemy of denying that Jesus was God and instead insist that Jesus was just a man like any other man who had sin and was in need of salvation. Yet, even this is an impossibility in the worldview of the atheist because, according to the atheist, there is no God. Further, there is no thing in existence called sin. Instead, it's just random chance existence brought into being by accident over millions of years of evolution. Thus, in this paradigm, there is neither salvation nor damnation. All there is, is the here and now existence without any ultimate authority, and then non-existence. Throughout this statement, the author demonstrates an underlying extreme false equivocation. It is clear that the author has truly deluded himself into believing that the atheists and secular humanist version of salvation is the same as that of God's word, the Bible, in context. According to the Bible, the only viable and true path to heaven and eternal salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ as one's Lord, God, and Savior via relationship with Jesus. According to atheists and secular humanists, there is no God, or there is no need for God. Neither is there any salvation or need for salvation. Instead, atheists and secular humanists, knowingly or unknowingly, use Jesus, the Bible, salvation, heaven as subterfuge, a red herring argument in order to distract, disrupt, discourage, and otherwise undermine as much of, of God's people as possible who stand in the way. When I say stand in the way, let us never forget that when God's people act as salt and light, as commanded by God's word, we serve by example to judge the world which is in rebellion. Unfortunately, if there's one thing people in rebellion hate, it's to be reminded by God, his word, or his people that they are in rebellion. So, no true child of God, whether they be evangelical, Roman Catholic, or from the church of Timbuktu, are under the heretical belief that Jesus was a rule-breaking humanist who wasn't saved. Instead, they are worshiping, honoring, and following him as Lord God, King, and Savior. No true child of God who is a bishop, pastor, or other leader anywhere is going to refuse, much less offer Jesus the sacraments, because it was Jesus who commanded his followers to observe his sacraments in remembrance of him, and not we who are supposed to be administering them to him.
Lastly, in the final analysis, it is the Bible, God's Word, which is editorializing as the ultimate authority against all things, including this author, atheists, secular humanists, magazines, including Christianity Today, the Pope, the Church, the world, and all mankind, and not the other way around. After this, the author states, quote, The message of Jesus' life is an intervention in an acceleration of the evolution of empathy. Consider this story from the book of Matthew. Quote, A woman who has been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment, unquote. The author continues, saying, quote, Jesus recognized a bleeding woman touching him as a sign of faith. By complimenting rather than rebuking her, Jesus ignored another of his scripture's rules, i.e., if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her period, or she has a discharge beyond the time, all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. Every bed on which she lies during all the days of her discharge shall be treated as unclean. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches these things shall be unclean. Leviticus chapter 15 verse 25, unquote. Once again, while Jesus did show empathy, the empathy he showed toward the woman in question was moved in this case by her faith in Jesus' ability and power as the Son of God. The emphasis of the story is one of a relationship. Jesus himself confirms this when, as the author himself points out, Jesus says, quote, Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you, unquote. The primary reason that Jesus rebuked people is for their lack of faith, their lack of ability or refusal to acknowledge him as Messiah and Lord. In the second half of the statement, Jesus was not ignoring scriptural rules. Jesus was again demonstrating that he, as Lord, as Messiah, would be the propitiatory sacrifice sufficient for all sin, for all unrighteousness, for all uncleanness of any kind as described previously about leprosy. Next we read, quote, Jesus' unfirst century antics went beyond coddling lepers and welcoming the touch of a bleeding woman. Jesus' embrace of a woman from an enemy tribe in a culture where tribal belonging was paramount distressed both his followers and enemies. His attitude to the other was as incomprehensible as if he had blurted E equals mc squared is the equation of mass energy equivalence, unquote. Quote, Jesus' unfirst century antics, unquote? Okay. Well, if Jesus is just a man, who cares? 
Why are we worrying about who he is welcoming or not? On the other hand, if Jesus is God, then God should know better than to go to the first century where everyone was so dysfunctional. If Jesus is God and Jesus is in such an agreement with the author, then Jesus should have manifested himself in this century so he could hang out with the author and other atheists where he could more effectively bag on the evangelical church and the conservative, quote, book cult, unquote, Roman Catholic bishops. What is Jesus doing wasting his time with these first century plebs if he is God? Yes, if Jesus is God, then according to this author, he should be a CEO for some current nonprofit organization where he can go on YouTube and make commercials to get those, quote, book cult, unquote, people's minds right. Instead, we find Jesus, who is God, purposely being born, ministering, and choosing his disciples in the first century. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to the whole world with the message of the gospel in the first century. Jesus began to build his church, which he stated that the gates of hell would not prevail against, in the first century. The entire New Testament was composed and completed in the first century. In the next paragraph, the author states, quote, even the Samaritan woman at the well knew that this, his actions were shocking. When Jesus stopped to talk to her, she said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Unquote. The author continues, saying, quote, Jesus responded by attacking the preeminence of religion, tradition, dogma, and group identity, offering an entirely new way of looking at spirituality by emphasizing basic human dignity above nation, state, gender, or religion, unquote. I'm sorry, but the contextual and theological point of this encounter was not that Jesus was, quote, offering an entirely new way of looking at spirituality by emphasizing basic human dignity above nation, state, gender, or religion, unquote. Neither God, Jesus, or the Bible ever talk about generic spirituality. The Bible always talks about spirituality in the sense that those who enter into faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, if sincere, have the promise that God will pour out his spirit, which will fill and work within the believer to sanctify us. No, the point was and is that Jesus is God. Because Jesus is God, he knows exactly where every person is with regard to their appointment, selection, and calling to himself. As God, Jesus knew that the Samaritan woman was empty and searching. Like everyone else who is likewise searching and empty, Jesus meets us as he does this woman. We are all outcasts in terms of sin and separation. We all thirst, as does the Samaritan woman, although only those who take up Jesus' offer to be filled will be truly quenched. 
Notice Jesus did not offer her government-sponsored indoor plumbing. He did not offer government-assisted transportation to keep coming to the well. He did not offer her vouchers to afford digging a well in her backyard. Instead, Jesus focuses on his identity as Messiah, as God. He offers living waters. Anyone who talks seriously about this kind of stuff in front of an atheist is going to get mocked and ridiculed, not held up to be some paragon of virtue as does this author with Jesus. Secondly, I have to ask, if in fact we are all nothing more than random chance accidents occurring over time as a result of mindless evolution, then what dignity do any of us have other than that which we each assign according to the dictates of opinion and consensus? It is only when we accept the premise that there is an ultimate source of authority, i.e. God, who has created man as his image bearer, that we can say that we all hold dignity in the sense that there is some aspect of us as humans that was created in God's image. For those who have been made a new creation in Jesus, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 does promise, quote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, unquote. But at the same time, it is not our human self-efforts to legislate human dignity above nation, state, gender, or religion which merits favor with God and heals our separation to Him. It is His grace which draws and calls us to repentance and reconciliation through faith in Jesus as Lord God and Savior which merits God's favor heals our separation, and we are seen as justified and perfectly equal as a result of Christ's covering, finished propitiation on the cross. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part six. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.